Our sermon text this morning is Mark 10, 32 to 52, another long passage uh, in Sunday school this morning. Uh, we read from 1 Timothy that Paul tells Timothy, speaking of the gathered church, to give attention uh, to the public reading of the scriptures. I have to confess to you that sometimes during a long scripture reading, my mind wanders. Uh, but brothers and sisters, it is well worth our time and our effort and our focus uh, to read aloud the words of our living God. So let me read uh, Mark chapter 10 verses 32 to 52 for you. Beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Please pray with me once more. God, as we come to your word, we need your help. I need your help to preach faithfully and clearly. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help, Lord, we need your help to hear what you have to say, to believe it, to respond in faith. Help us, God. Give us life as we come to your word. Lift up Jesus and do us good as we see his glory. Uh, do these things for your glory and our joy, we pray, through Jesus. Amen. What do you want? And is what you want actually what you need? If God Almighty 
were to ask you what you wanted from him, how sure are you that your answer would be something that's good for you? How sure are you that what you want God to do for you is what you actually need him to do for you? Well, twice in our Bible story from Mark's gospel this morning, as we just read, the Lord Jesus, the God-man, asks someone that searching question. What do you want me to do for you? We've seen again and again, haven't we, especially as we've studied through Mark's gospel, uh, that Bible stories are not only true historical records. The stories of the Bible invade our space, don't they? They draw us into the drama as the God who speaks in them speaks to us too. And here, I think, is the question that God's Word presses on each one of us through this passage. It's the question that Jesus asks James and John and Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Mark wants to steer us toward a very particular answer to that question through what he's written. So as we walk through our text this morning, uh, I want us just to walk through the four scenes that we have in this narrative. So that's code for this is a four-point sermon. Uh, I'll mention each scene as we go along. Uh, So in our first scene this morning, there in verses 32 to 34, we find a third prediction. That's our first point, a third prediction. The first verse of our passage, verse 32, says that Jesus and his disciples are on the road, or literally on the way, to Jerusalem. Uh, Remember, ever since the middle of Mark chapter 8, Mark has been recording Jesus' journey from the northern parts of Israel down to Jerusalem. I don't have a map for you, but let me ask the AV team if we can project uh, our slide. Uh, Remember, we've seen before that from the middle of Mark 8 uh, to the end of Mark 10, as Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, Mark repeats that key phrase, on the way, sometimes translated on the road or on the journey again and again. Uh, So you might remember the way is how early Christians referred to their religion. So we talk about Christianity. Early Christians would have talked about the way. And so what we've seen in this section of Mark's gospel from the middle of Mark 8 to the end of Mark 10 is that as Jesus is quite literally on the way from the north of Israel to Jerusalem, he's also teaching his disciples about the way. Uh, The way that God's Messiah, the Christ, must walk if he's to save his people, and the way in which Jesus calls his people to follow him. Look with me again at the text there in verse 32. We see there that as they're on the road or on the way, Jesus is, Mark says, walking ahead of them. And notice the two emotions that Mark lists among the disciples who follow Jesus. He says that they are amazed and afraid, amazed and afraid. Remember, we've seen quite a bit of that language in Mark's gospel before. When Jesus raises the dead or when Jesus walks on water or calms a storm, Mark tells us that those who see Jesus' glory are amazed or sometimes they're filled with fear. But what we've seen again and again in Mark's gospel is that being amazed at Jesus is not necessarily the same thing as understanding what Jesus is all about. In fact, in this first scene here, Jesus tells his disciples something he's already told them twice, which they have not managed to understand. 
I remember this section of Jesus being on the way from the middle of Mark 8 to the end of Mark 10. If we can't get the slides, I'll just wave my hands, especially vigorously. Um, This section from the middle of Mark 8 to the end of Mark 10, where Jesus is on the way, is punctuated by three predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection. So if you have your Bible, turn with me just one page back, oh, two page, nope, just one page back to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This is part of the text that Larry read for us in our New Testament reading immediately after Jesus, note, heals a blind man and is identified as the Christ there in verse 31. We read this, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Prediction number one, as Jesus and his disciples are on the way. Now look over chapter nine, verses 30 and 31. Continuing on the way, it says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill, I'm sorry, and, uh, and they will kill him. Yes. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection number two. As they're on the way. Now, turn over again to our passage, chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. There in verse 33, look what Jesus says. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will, notice this, mock him. And spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Third prediction. Now, we might understand why Jesus wants his disciples to know that he'll die and rise. But why does Jesus include the details that he does? Why does Jesus say, hey, by the way, I'm going to die, but before I die, they're going to mock me, they're going to spit on me, and they're going to flog me? Why does Jesus mention those three things? Why do they make it into this clearly summarized account that Mark has for us? Mocking, spitting, flogging. Well, Jesus is including these details in order to allude to the Old Testament, as we've seen him do again and again. He is inviting his listeners to interpret what he's saying in light of some specific sections of the Old Testament with the same kind of language. So if I told you later this week that I was going to hop in my X-wing and go use the force while training with Yoda, then bust out my lightsaber so that I can go confront Vader. If you've seen Star Wars you would know that in some weird way, that doesn't really make any sense, I'm identifying myself with Luke Skywalker. You might not have any idea what I meant by that, but it's very clear through those illusions that I'm saying, I am something of a Luke Skywalker. Well, in these verses, Jesus is loading his language with allusions to the Old Testament in order to identify himself with two characters from the Old Testament. Not fictional characters like Luke Skywalker, but prophesied characters. The first character with whom Jesus is identifying himself is, as we've seen before, the Son of Man. We've talked about this in prior weeks. Jesus, in calling himself the Son of Man, is saying that I am the Son of Man figure from Daniel chapter 7. Just in brief, uh, the Son of Man from Daniel 7 is the eternal King of all mankind. We've studied that before, so I won't say anything more about the Son of Man. The second Old Testament character with whom Jesus is identifying here, we've mentioned before, but we need to do a deeper dive, is the suffering servant of Isaiah. 
That's why Jesus mentions these details of being mocked and flogged and spat upon, because he's alluding to the passages in Isaiah about the suffering servant. Okay, great. Who is the suffering servant from Isaiah? Well, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah spoke about someone who would save God's people by becoming a substitute. And Isaiah identified that substitute as the suffering servant. Here's what's going on in the book of Isaiah. All throughout Isaiah, God is telling his people Israel that they have broken the covenant. God is reminding his people of the covenant that he made with them at Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. After God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And in a marriage-like way, God said to Israel, I will take you to be my people. And Israel said to God, we will take you to be our God. Thank you. That's the slide. I hope my hand motions make sense. You can take it down. Thank you. We'll, We'll come back to that. Thank you. All throughout the book of Isaiah, God is reminding his people, Israel, that they have broken the covenant that he made with them at Mount Sinai. They have been an unfaithful partner. As the story of Scripture unfolds, we see God's people severely and repeatedly cheat on their covenant Lord with other gods. So after hundreds of years of God's people cheating and Him pursuing them and calling them out, God speaks to Isaiah, through them to Isaiah again uh, to condemn their sin. And God tells His people through Isaiah, because you have broken the covenant that I made with you, there is a rift. There is a moral tear between us. Uh, There is a debt that you have incurred. There is a curse that you've brought down. And by the way, God says through Isaiah, it's very clear from how you're treating me that you don't love me anymore. Isaiah is full of bad news. But in the middle of Isaiah, from chapters 40 to 55, God promises that he is going to send someone to fix what his people have broken. And God says that person who will come and repair his relationship with his people is the suffering servant. God says this suffering servant will somehow mend the rift. He will sew up the tear. He will remove the curse. He will pay the debt of God's people. Uh, And Isaiah says that the suffering servant is going to do that by becoming a substitute. The servant is going to keep the covenant in the place of God's people and on their behalf. Uh, The servant is going to suffer for the disobedience of God's people in their place and on their behalf. The suffering servant will save God's people through substitution as their substitute. Look ahead just for a moment to what Jesus says in in verse 45. Jesus says, for even the son of man, again, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve. How? And to give his life as a ransom for or literally in the place of many. Both there in verse 45 and in the verses we read a moment ago in 32 to 34, Jesus is very clearly identifying himself as the suffering servant from Isaiah. Did you hear in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 50 in verse 6, we heard specifically that God's suffering servant to whom he calls us to listen, will be disgraced, it says in verse 6. He will be flogged, he will be struck, and he will be spat upon as he obeys God. Later in Isaiah 53, another famous passage about the servant, uh, Isaiah writes that the servant will pour out his life for many, struck, spat upon, mocked, pouring out his life for many. 
Do you see what Jesus is saying when he says, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem to be mocked, to be flogged, to be spat upon, and to die in order to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, I am going to Jerusalem to be the suffering servant, to bring God's people back into a restored relationship with him by acting as their substitute. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, one thing before we move on from this first scene, just going to plant this, we'll come back to it. What does Jesus tell his disciples to do in these first three verses? What does he tell them to do? What's the, what's the first word that Jesus says in verse 33? He says, see, see. When I say the word see, At the beginning of a sentence, usually it's a filler word. I'm trying to think of the next word. And so I use one that doesn't really have much meaning to me. Listen, Jesus does not use filler words in the Gospels. Jesus is commanding, is calling his disciples to see something. He wants them to adopt a specific view of interpretation of himself and his mission and to believe what that implies about them and their need and the world. Jesus is calling his disciples to see that he is the suffering servant and to see the rest of the world in light of that. So friend, let me ask you, do you see what Jesus is saying. Do you see what Jesus is saying? I'm not just asking, do you sort of understand the concepts that I've mentioned? Did you follow the Isaiah references? I'm saying, is your view of the world, view of yourself, view of Jesus, shaped by what Jesus is saying here? Do you see that Jesus is the suffering servant and that we need him? Just last Sunday, we met in Mark's gospel a rich man who came to Jesus asking about eternal life. But that man left Jesus sad and unsaved because he didn't see. He didn't see that he needed a substitute to pay his debt, to do what he couldn't. He did not see that he needed to be served and saved by the suffering servant. And so he left. So our first scene is the third prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, which he calls us to see. Sadly, in our second scene, our text reveals that the disciples are really struggling to see. They're struggling to see. In our first scene, we had a third prediction. Our second scene... In verses 35 to 41, uh, reveals a third blunder. A third blunder. What is a blunder? Well, in the game of chess, a blunder, technically, is a really bad move. You blunder when you don't see what's going on. I blunder lots Because I don't see that if I move my queen there, it will be taken by my opponent's knight. A blunder is a mistake that arises from a failure of vision. Well, for the third time in this section of Mark's gospel, while Jesus and his disciples are on the way, after Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, the disciples blunder massively. Remember the passage that Larry read for us earlier in Mark chapter 8. Jesus heals a blind man. We'll get back to that. And then Jesus says, listen, I'm the son of man and I'm going to die and then rise. You remember what happens immediately after that? Peter says, no, Jesus, 
You're not going to need to do that. Right? Peter tries to talk Jesus out of saving the world. That's a blunder, if there ever was one. Blunder number one. Remember what happens after prediction number two in chapter nine, which we read a minute ago. Jesus says, listen, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise. The disciples are on the way. They arrive at their, you know, midway point, And Jesus says, hey, what were y'all talking about on the road? And the disciples are a little sheepish because what they were talking about is which one of them was the greatest. They were arguing with each other about who's the greatest, right? What a blunder. The son of man, the greatest of all time is saying, listen, I'm going to serve and suffer and die. But they don't see. And so they, they have a greatness war with one another. Blunder number two. Look there at blunder number three. Immediately after, Jesus has just said, listen, I am the suffering servant of Isaiah who gives his life to serve God's people by lowering himself and suffering. What do they do? Blunder number three. We're told in verse 35 that James and John come to Jesus with a request Uh, Notice Mark really draws out the making of this request. Mark could have recorded this much more briefly. Look at what Mark says there in verse 35. He says that James and John ask, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Here in verse 36, Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? draws the spotlight to what James and John want from Jesus, what they think they need. Unfortunately, it's a massive blunder. Look there at verse 37. It says, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. What has Jesus just been talking about? suffering to serve others for God's glory. What are James and John talking about? Self-exaltation and getting glory for themselves on their own terms and their timeline. Right, here's what James and John want Jesus to do for them. They want him to ensure that they get the prominence, the resources, the ease, the respect, the authority, the attention, the comfort that they think they deserve. Now, there's something especially selfish about what James and John are doing here. They seem to be trying to get an edge over Peter. Remember, we've seen that most of what uh, Jesus does, he does with all 12 of his disciples. But on occasion, uh, Jesus brings only Peter, James, and John with him, right? And Peter is kind of at least the loudest, probably the de facto leader And James and John figure, well, we've heard Jesus call himself the son of man, right? The the eternal king of humanity. And Jesus only got two hands, but there's three of us. And Peter has been on top, but he's recently blundered, right? He said that thing about not uh, Jesus, not going to the cross, right? That was not a good move. So James and John seem to be trying to edge out Peter, Uh, They seem to be competing with him for glory, right? There's going to be two seats next to Jesus. Why shouldn't they be us? Uh, Peter can sit somewhere else. Look there at what Jesus says in verse 38. He says, you do not know what you are asking, right? You you have blundered. You, You don't see what's going on. Are you able to drink the cup, Jesus says, that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In the Old Testament, one's cup often refers to one's destiny. Many times a cup can refer to an especially difficult part of one's destiny or a sort of an allotted suffering. The word baptize literally just means to dip or to immerse. Um, And we find examples in ancient literature of metaphorical language about being baptized in troubles or baptized, like thrown into suffering, right? We might say drowning in difficulties or something. Jesus is saying to James and John, listen, you don't yet understand what it means to share in the glory of the Son of Man, who's also the suffering servant. You don't yet understand the way that the Christ travels, the way 
on which he calls his disciples to walk. The Christ travels to his glorious throne as the Son of Man through all of the sufferings which Jesus has literally told you about three times now. This suffering, not for the sake of exaltation later. Lots of people suffer so that they can get selfish glory on their terms later out of self-love. Jesus suffers in love for others to the glory of God on his terms. Remember what Jesus says in the garden, not my will, Father, but yours. James and John still clearly don't get it. They're like, Jesus, yes, bring on the cup, bring on the baptism. We are able, we are able. And Jesus says there that they will one day share his cup and his baptism there in verse 39. And we know from the book of Acts that James, after his heart was radically changed from this moment, he was in fact martyred for the Lord Jesus. He shared that cup and John would die in exile for his faith in Jesus. They would share the cup, but before they do, they're going to fall asleep while Jesus asks them to keep watch and they're going to desert Jesus in his darkest hour because they don't get it. Well, in response to James and John's request, Jesus says that in verse 40, or in verse 40, he says that whoever gets to sit at his right and his left is, is his father's prerogative, really. So James and John have blundered massively. Maybe they're the outliers. Maybe the other 10 are doing better. Well, look there in verse 41. It says there, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant or angry at James and John. Does that word indignant, does that, does that ring a bell for something we've seen in Mark's gospel recently? Do you remember last week that people were bringing children to Jesus so that he might bless them? And the disciples were trying to stop them, saying these children are not important enough to receive Jesus' blessing. Do you remember what Mark said? He said that Jesus got indignant. Same word. What makes Jesus indignant? It's when children are prevented from receiving his kindness and love. When Jesus wants to give and to bless and to serve, and someone steps in the way of him giving and blessing and serving, Jesus is indignant. What makes James and John, I'm sorry, not James and John, what makes the other 10 disciples indignant? Right, when James and John's selfish pursuit of glory impinges on their own selfish pursuit of glory, right? James and John are trying to edge them out and they're angry because they wanted to be on top, right? The disciples' mindset is when your pursuit of glory gets in the way of my pursuit of glory, I am angry. I'm indignant. Friends, what, what makes you indignant? What makes you frustrated? What makes you short and sharp and snappy with other people? What makes you bitter? What makes you play the tapes over and over again in your mind? What makes you feel so wronged that you feel like you need to vent? Friend, the, the things that make us indignant... They reveal what we really, really want. And what our anger reveals is that most of the time, what we want is really not good. It's really all about ourselves. Not much of the anger in my own life and heart is because I really, really, really want the grace of Jesus to reach other people. Not much of the anger in my life is because I really, really want God's good and sovereign plans to prevail. I wouldn't be angry about that because they always do. I rarely get angry because I want to be a loving, self-giving, humble servant of Jesus, and I can't. Most of the time I'm angry because in some way I want some kind of glory now on my terms, whatever that might look like. And my sovereign plans are interrupted. Many times the things that I want are not wrong. But my indignation and my anger reveals that I want them too much. If I want them enough to hurt someone made in God's image, I want them too much. And we 
like the disciples, are often embarrassingly out of step with the suffering servant. What do we want Jesus to do for us? What James and John want? To let our will be done. And when it doesn't happen, we're angry. And so Jesus, with astonishing gentleness, follows up the third blunder with a third lesson. That's our third scene this morning. We've seen a third prediction, a third blunder, and now a third lesson. Jesus' first prediction, and then Peter's blunder, was followed by a lesson about taking up our cross, which Larry read for us. Jesus' second prediction and the second blunder about who's the greatest, that argument, is followed by a lesson about making ourselves last in order to be first. Well, after the third prediction and the third blunder we've just seen, after James and John misunderstand what it means to share in Jesus' glory, after the ten are indignant because they share the same misunderstanding, Jesus gives a third lesson about the way of the servant, the way of the suffering servant, and the way Jesus calls us to follow him. Let me read verses 42 to 45, unbroken. We read there, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Saints, these verses are so important and so dense that Lord willing, uh, next week the sermon is going to be only on these verses. Uh, These verses are central for the doctrine of the atonement and for what it means to follow the Son of Man who is the suffering servant. So Lord willing, next week we're zooming in on this subsection of today's passage. Uh, So I won't comment on them at length now. Uh, This morning, I just want to point out one thing about them. Notice that Jesus connects following him with seeing him. Jesus connects following him with seeing him. Jesus says, look, this is how you're supposed to treat one another. And then in verse 45, he says, for... In other words, here are the grounds for what I'm about, for what I've just told you. The son of man, me, I came not to be served, but to serve, right? Here's what you must do. And the reason why is look at me. Do you see what I am doing? Your, your ability to follow me impinges on your ability to see what I'm like. So I have no desire to comment on the wisdom of electric vehicles or on Elon Musk, uh, an eccentric individual, Uh, but I was struck to learn that in 2018, when Tesla was under immense pressure to crank out a huge number of Model 3 sedans, Elon Musk repeatedly slept on the floor of his Tesla factory during the busy seasons. Uh, He reports one day he wore the same clothes five days in a row because he was working nonstop. That's because Elon wanted his employees to see his willingness to suffer for what he was calling them to. That's what he said. Musk is reported as saying, I wanted my circumstance to be worse than anyone else at the company. His comment on his behavior was that those seeing him sacrifice would be moved to imitate him, to give their all as they saw him giving his all. We can debate the merits of Elon Musk's leadership style till the cows come home, But the simple point illustrates what Jesus is saying powerfully. Jesus connects us following him with us seeing him serve us. 
Do you, do you see the connection between seeing the Son of Man as the loving, giving, suffering servant? The connection between seeing that and turning from the kind of pride and self-glorifying attitude that we see in James and John and the other ten. This is our shortest point this morning, this third scene, because again, Lord willing, we'll spend next Sunday looking at only these verses. I just want you to see that Jesus connects serving him with seeing him. And as if to drive this point home, Mark ends the passage and this whole section in which the disciples and Jesus are on the way with one more third. We've seen three thirds, and I know that this is not how you do it mathematically, but our fourth point is a fourth third. We've seen a third prediction, a third blunder, a third lesson, and there in verses 46 to 52, we see a third blind man, a third blind man. What am I talking about? Who are the first two blind men? Let me ask the AV team if we can project that slide again. What did we see immediately before Jesus' prediction of, first prediction of his death and resurrection? What did Jesus do in Larry's sermon reading? He healed a blind man. Remember, he did it in two stages. Initially, he gave the blind man limited sight so that he was partly blind. He saw people like trees, and then eventually he restored him to full sight. Well, what does this whole section from the middle of Mark 8 to the end of Mark 10 reveal about the disciples? What's the next slide? It reveals that the disciples are blind. They don't see what Jesus tells them three times. Jesus says, listen, I'm the son of man and I'm the suffering servant. I'm going to die. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. And the way on which I call you to walk is being like me, following, suffering, serving. But the disciples don't see. They're blind. Uh, They know who the Christ is. They're like that blind man after his first healing, but they don't see clearly. They're still partially blind. Well, how does the section end this section on the way? Let me read it to you again from chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. Look with me there. It says, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Friends, listen. This is the point of Mark 8 to 10. If you want to follow Jesus, you need him to open your eyes. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, the eye, how you see the world what you look at, how you interpret reality. The eye is the lamp of the whole body. Jesus says, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is full of darkness, how great is the darkness in your whole body? Jesus is saying, how you live is downstream of what you see. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, your ability to follow Jesus on the way is directly connected to how clearly you see him. 
right? We hear these words and we think, oh, this is about being converted, right? This is about uh, coming to know Jesus the first time. Friends, I actually think that this section of Mark's gospel speaks primarily to those of us who are disciples of Jesus about our growth in following him on the way. Christian, listen, uh, this is what this section of scripture says to us, I think. If you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to follow Jesus more faithfully on the way, if you want to be more and more like the suffering servant, what you need most is to see Jesus clearly. You need him to open your eyes to what he is like. He needs to be big in your field of vision. He needs to be the focus of your camera lens. You need an HD 24-7 shot of him in your mind if you would grow. Friends, listen, that's why we read and study and meditate on God's word day after day after day after day as Christians, because we need to see Jesus. That's why we gather at church week after week after week in every text, wherever we are in the Bible, even when we're not in a gospel, we always get to Jesus because that's how the Bible is organized so that we might always be seeing what he is like and transformed as we see that's why week after week, we practice the Lord's Supper and baptism month after month again and again. Because in these signs, we see pictures of what Christ has done for us to wash us, to raise us from the dead, to give himself for us, to invite us to his table. We do these things and we pray that the Holy Spirit would work through them because we are changed we are strengthened, we are sanctified, we are motivated, we are empowered to follow Jesus on the way as he opens our eyes to what he is like. Christian, you need to see more of Jesus. You need to see the majesty and glory and authority of the Son of Man more vividly. You need to see the love and the humility and the service of the suffering servant more clearly. You need to see the patience of Jesus with disciples who blunder. Friends, how patient and kind is Jesus, right? This section of scripture doesn't end with Jesus calling off the atonement because the disciples still don't get it. It doesn't end with him blowing up at them in rage. It ends with him continuing his march to the cross, continuing to instruct them, continuing to be kind, continuing to be gentle. You need to see the love and mercy of the son of David who walked resolute, his face like a flint, Isaiah said, to the cross, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be spat upon, to be killed so that he could have us, so that he could save us so that we could be his. We need to see Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. Later he'll say, in the face of Jesus are being transformed into that image. Saints, listen, we become what we behold. We become what we worshipfully behold. And if you want to be like Jesus again and again and again, you need to see him in his word. One of my favorite Christian teachers is a man named David Pallison, who died just a few years ago. David's Pall David Pallison's wisdom and helpfulness as a minister uh, led him often to be referred to as the Yoda of the biblical counseling movement. There's another Star Wars allusion there. Uh, Paulison had a degree from Harvard, a doctorate from UPenn, Masters of Divinity from Westminster. He understood the human heart because he understood the Bible. And because he understood the Bible, he understood how people change. And that was David Paulison's specialty. How do Christians change and grow? Well, one of David Paulison's most important books uh, is a book called seeing with new eyes, seeing with new eyes. Saints, that's how we change. Jesus gives us new eyes 
a new set of lenses through which to interpret our world, to interpret our relationship with him, what he's done for us, what we actually need. And as we see differently, uh, we change how we live. Let me close with this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first, again, let me say we're so delighted that you've come. Uh, You're so welcome to be here. We're delighted you're here. Friend, here is the question that this passage poses to you. Christians, this is true for you as well. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you most need from God? What is it that you want from the universe? What is the version of James and John's request to which your heart is drawn What is the version of me satisfying my ambitions, my cravings, my fantasies on my terms now that your heart is drawn to? From the the claim of the Bible is that the good and wise God who made and rules the universe created us all to know him and to be like him. Good like he is good. Wise like he is wise. But the tragic reality is that we've all turned away from him And tragically, because we've turned away from him, not only have we become his enemies, we've also become blind. Our our lenses are wildly out of focus. Our perspective is, is badly warped. We have become out of touch with ultimate reality. We no longer see what God is truly like. And so we don't see ourselves or our deepest need clearly. And so this morning, friend, God's word invites you to ask Jesus, the son of David, to have mercy on you. That is to show you kindness and help and forgiveness that you didn't earn. And to open your eyes to help you to see what he is like, what you need, what he offers you. He invites you to ask him to open your eyes so that you might be served by the suffering servant and so that you might follow him on the way. Saints, let's pray that our God would do these things in us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that often we are so blind. Lord, we see the world through self-important and selfish lenses Our view of the world excludes you and your glory, your grace, your kindness, your gospel. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to open blind eyes so that we we might see that we need him as the suffering servant to save us and so that we might follow him on the way. God, I pray for any here who don't know the Lord Jesus. I pray that in your kindness, I think you would open their eyes to Christ's goodness, to his grace, uh, to their need, that they might trust him. Uh, Lord, I pray for those of us who know Jesus and struggle so much to follow him on the way. Lord, every one of us, we pray that you, Jesus, would continue to be opening our eyes to who you are, uh, to what this world you've made is really like, to what we're like, uh, and to what you say is true to your grace, your glory, your love, your holiness. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would enable us by the power of your spirit to follow you on the way as we worship you and trust you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.